We've made it to the passage where Jesus is finally beginning to face trial. He's going to be crucified. He knows this. He has given final instructions to his disciples and he has told Judas, go out, do what you do quickly. Judas uh, knew where he was going to be and led the, led the soldiers and huge crowd with torches and so forth out into the garden where they found Jesus and where they arrested him. And as Jesus is arrested, we see the tactics of God's enemies at their most extreme. Because really, there was nothing more extreme than the arrest, trial, and execution, murder of Jesus the Christ. And we're going to take a look at some of those tactics. We also see the temptations of Christ's disciples, which includes us. And we see those temptations at their most extreme. Because when else was there that there was so little hope without faith? So little expectation of good to come. Of course, we know that Jesus had reiterated over and over again to his disciples that he was going to die and that he was going to be raised again. But the disciples were... They were lost. They were clueless. They were maybe dumb. They were like us. We also see the work of Jesus Christ and what he, how he responds both to the most extreme wickedness and tactics and attacks of his enemies as well as the abandonment, the desertion of his disciples. Christ's enemies attack without fear, the Son of God. The disciples of the Son of God become fearful and ashamed. These, everything's flipped on its head, right? And yet Jesus, Jesus remains the same. But he does change something in in his response. And we know that when he comes again, he will crush his enemies. And that's not what he does here, is it? Why? Well, because he knew that this was why he had come the first time, to fulfill the scriptures, that there had to be a sacrifice. He had just prayed if there was any other way that God's will could be done, that God would do it that other way. But now, the path is set. There is no other way. And so, he faces it boldly. And Jesus has been quite bold in his speaking up till now. But now he becomes quiet 
trusting to what he has said and done in the past to accomplish what he set out for it to accomplish. What was it that he set out for it to accomplish? Well, among other things, it was meant to accomplish his own execution. Jesus had spoke, he had spoken to the people, he'd spoken to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the chief priests, he'd spoken to the soldiers, he'd spoken in public, and he had said very clearly that he was the Son of God, and then he proved it with his actions, with the miracles. And so, he knew what was coming by doing those things. And he's not ashamed of them now as he faces trial and as he faces accusations. And so what we're going to see this morning is what we should be like, what we shouldn't be like, and what our temptations are. So please stand for the reading of God's word. From John chapter 18, we'll read verses 12 through 27. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold. And they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong." But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Then Peter then denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. 
Please be seated. Give you a little picture of the the context here is you you know we're only reading from John this morning, but we also have the record from the other gospels of the time leading up to this night, this night, and they record some some different things. John knew what had been written uh, in the other books of the gospels, and so he brings out some different items, some of the same things, some different things uh, to focus on. And really, it's dependent on his message, his focus in his book, the goal that he is driving towards, which, as I continually remind us, he says these things near the end of the book, these things I've written, so that you may believe, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so... John then starts in his book with this focus on Jesus as God incarnate, the Son of God, and the relationship that he has with the Father, and the intimacy that they have, and the the unity that they have in purpose, being one God. So now you, you come forward, and, and John really puts himself into the background throughout the book. He, he, comes, he comes up several times, of course, because he's in the story. <clears throat> you know what, Pat, could you give me some water? I'm definitely going to need water before the end. That's coffee. You better not bring me coffee. <clears throat> Thanks. Um. So now John, John seems to be this other disciple that he speaks of as the other disciple. There was another disciple there, right? And what a, what a beautiful thing. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and he's so humble in how he writes. And he's so, it's so obviously different what he does as opposed to what Peter does here this night, right? And yet, we don't see him talking about what he did differently, right? Thanks, Pat. What do we see? Well, we see a chilly night. We see soldiers starting a fire. We see this other disciple going and getting the doorkeeper to open the door so that Peter can come in. And, you know, that takes a certain amount of guts, doesn't it? (laughs) These people are really, really angry at Jesus. Uh, They're really threatened by him. They really hate him and his disciples. And John sticks out his neck. And everybody, being known to them, it's obvious that they know who he is and that he's a disciple of Jesus. There's no denying that, right? And then he's going out 
But he has the guts to, to go to the doorkeeper and say, let in this other disciple of Jesus. And again, there's no doubting that the doorkeeper would have known. Right? And, there's, and really, there's no doubting that everybody else would have known, as is obvious from the fact that everybody who's there is going, where did this guy come from? You must be one of his disciples. You hear how he talks? He's one of his disciples. And so we think of, we think of Peter trying to avoid that, trying to, trying to ignore the comments that he's hearing around the fire, trying to uh, pretend as though he doesn't hear, pretend as though... You guys know how this happens, right? John records a few, of, a few different questions. Ultimately, Peter re- denies even knowing Jesus three times, just as Jesus had said he would. And you understand why, don't you? He wants to stand by the fire because it's cold. The way this would have been set up, houses, you would have had a... a probably a square or rectangular courtyard open to various rooms from the center of the house. So you come through the gate into the house, but you're in an open courtyard, open to the sky, which is why it's so cold. Uh, And you come in, and then you've got openings into other rooms. And, And we stayed in a house in Ethiopia that was sort of like this, um, there's a wall around the outside because it's dangerous there. <laughs> and you come in and you're in a courtyard. And then there's a sort of normal house built up against the wall on the side. But then there's, there's this other sort of L shape of a building that there's a door into like an outdoor kitchen over here. And then there's a door into a storage room, and there's a door into maybe another bedroom over here. And they're all exterior doors into the courtyard, right? Well, the reason this matters is because it seems as though if you take the, if you take, uh, the recording from the other Gospels and John and you put it all together, um, it's not... It's not entirely clear the, the exact ordering of how everything goes, but it seems as though what happens is Jesus is brought in and this records his pre-trial with Annas. Okay? And then he's sent to Caiaphas and the other uh, and the actual trial where there's the whole gathering. So this is before everybody is gathered. But it, it appears as though it all takes place in the same house, just simply in a different room. And the reason is because you see Jesus in one of the other records being able to just turn around and look at Peter. Peter's in the courtyard, right? So he can look out and he can see and hear because we have very different houses than them. That's kind of what I'm driving at. <laughs> you want to put yourself into the situation where... Normally the weather is quite nice, but it, in the night it can get cold certain times of the year. And so, uh, but the houses are built up 
without air conditioning and, and not really focused on even heat either. If you get cold, you, you, know, you bundle up or you go to bed or you start a fire in the courtyard. And that's what happens here. And so Peter, Peter really sums up the normal Christian, I would say. <laughs> John is not the normal Christian. John, John loved Jesus more than most. Does it offend you for me to say that? Maybe I should turn it around. John was loved by Jesus more than most. Does that offend you? The one whom Jesus loved. There were three, and Peter was one of the three, but then there was the one, and the one was John. And even among those three, what a difference between Peter and John. Well, Jesus is answering these first, these first questions, these first charges from Annas. And Jesus, his whole ministry, has been making disciples and teaching. You think about the, you know, the story of Jesus, you read Luke, and it starts with his birth, and you've got quite a bit about leading up to his birth, and then, the, and then his birth, and a couple of more stories, little things recorded for us, and then you skip way forward to his ministry. So all of a sudden, he's 30, and, and he begins his ministry, and he spends three years, and what does he spend his three years doing? You read the whole book Luke and Matthew, and what you find is he spends it teaching and making disciples. And here, both of those activities are cast in a negative light by Annas, and he's questioned about them. Now, have you guys ever done anything good and then had somebody look askance at you, like, what are you doing? Has ever had that? It happens, right? When does it happen? Well, it happens for one of two reasons. Either because the person is nasty and suspicious, or because you're typically bad. Right? <laughs> Those are, the, those are basically the two reasons that we end up having somebody look at, us, look, look at us suspiciously for doing something good. You know, why did you clean the kitchen? Because you don't normally clean the kitchen, right? And, and, and if the person is... Uh, if the person is just suspicious and, and, and nasty and mean, then, um, then really it doesn't matter how many times you clean the kitchen, they're just still going to be like, rah, 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 at you. But the other option, of course, is that they're on to you. And they know you're actually trying to do something in secret, right? Maybe you had 
I remember when uh, I was desperately trying to clean the kitchen one time to, to hide the fact that I had made an in, uh, made a huge mess and used up all kinds of stuff experimenting in the kitchen. My mom would not have been very happy. I knew this because she had told me to stop doing that. <clears throat> and so... I don't remember her coming in and catching me cleaning or knowing that I had cleaned or anything, but you know, you can see her looking at me as I'm like, quick wiping, you know, why are you cleaning the kitchen? <laughs> Trying to hide the evidence. That would be a bad reason, right? I mean, that's not like you've done something good. You've done something bad and you're trying to cover it up. Why did you clean the car? What do you want from me? The only time you ever clean the car is when you want money, right? These are the sorts of, you know, on the one hand, it can be that you're doing something good for a bad reason and they, they, they're on to you. And on the other hand, they can just be people who are never satisfied, never pleased with you doing good things. So, so now we come back to Jesus and Jesus is being questioned for teaching and making disciples. Well, these things are normal things. They're good things. And yet you've, you've got to understand, yeah, I mean, you can do good things for a bad reason. There can be something nefarious and hidden and secret going on. So why do they ask him about his disciples? Presumably, they thought there was a secret group. That was going to, that had some secret plan, right? That Jesus had this nefarious purpose. And really, they, they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was bad for them. And ultimately, they were right simply because they insisted on him being bad for them. They made themselves his enemies. But there was nothing secret about what Jesus was doing. They misunderstood the nature of his goal, not understanding that his kingdom was not of this world and themselves being insistent that the kingdom of God had to be of this world. They refused to accept the Messiah, the king whom God sent, to establish his kingdom. And so what was Jesus preaching? The kingdom of God. Right? And they were not pleased. Here they were, the religious leaders. They were to be leading the people in preparation to be ready for the coming of the kingdom of God. But instead, they're like, why are you gathering disciples? Because I'm the king. And the kingdom of God has come. But he doesn't answer, does he? He's already been clear in his teaching. He's already told them. They've, they've been there. They've heard. The soldier, even, the, even the officers, the soldiers who are standing around, remember that they had been sent to arrest him while he was preaching in the temple, in public, while he was making disciples and teaching? And they're sent to arrest him, and they come back without him. And the chief priest, what are you doing? We sent you to arrest him. Where is he? Nobody talks like this guy. Nobody's ever talked like this guy. Or just earlier in this chapter, 
they're coming out with swords and clubs and torches, a huge crowd of people to arrest him. And he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus, we're going to get Jesus. That's me. And what do they do? They all fall down. There's, there's, Jesus has never been hiding who he is or what he is or what he's about, what he's accomplishing. He's never been ashamed of who he is. He's never been ashamed of why he was sent. He's never been ashamed of his father. Of course, Peter sadly acts as if they're right by acting all suspicious in the garden, right? Out in the courtyard. You're not one of his disciples. You're you're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, no, no. So so Peter, Peter's completely going opposite of what Jesus is saying, what what Jesus has been doing. Jesus is saying, you know, my disciples, everybody knows who my disciples are. Everybody knows what I've been saying. There's nothing hidden about what I've been doing. Just, Just ask anybody. And the people who would know are outside and they're doing that, right? And Peter's going, no, no, it's a, a secret group. I mean, that's the implication of what he's... Yeah, no, we've got something nefarious going on. I better keep this... I need, to, I need to stay hidden so that I can accomplish something. You know, it's just... It's evil. It's not just evil because he denies his Lord. It's evil because he is ashamed to be named a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus is never ashamed of his father, the work that he's been given. Peter is now ashamed, and he's ashamed and fearful, right? So, disciples, they ask him about his disciples, and then they ask him about his teaching. And again, you know, Jesus' answer is the same. He's answering both questions the same way. I've taught in the open. But again, if you put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees and the chief priests, you can see that they'd hardly believe this to be true. He's got to have some secret self-serving goal that he's going after because that's what they all do. He's got to have something that only his loyal followers would know, some plan. His public teaching is obviously just to get people following him so that he can pull off his real goal. But regardless of what suspicion it is that drives them, they still need some particular accusation of what he's doing wrong or what he's attempting to do wrong. And there's no witnesses and there's no charges. Right? And that's what Jesus points out by his response. He doesn't give them any He doesn't give them any more teaching. He doesn't give them any more uh, discussion about his disciples. He just says, "I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. 
and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Where is the evidence? Where is the accusation? Even if he was doing something secret and devious and nefarious and they're suspicious of him, they can't just arrest him without having some sort of knowledge of what his plan is so they can charge him and say, you're, you're attempting a rebellion. And here's the witness that says you teach, you know, it, but none of that's present. Jesus has been perfectly clear in his teaching. And more than that, when you look at what he teaches, he's largely just expounding the Old Testament. He's teaching the Old Testament doctrines. He's explaining them anew. He is opening them up in a way that they've never been opened up before. Nobody has ever taught this way before, right? But it's nothing new. He, re- he returns over and over and over again to the Old Testament, and he lodges his teaching in the Old Testament law. From the beginning, God made them male and female. Have you never read? Right? This is, his, this is his teaching. It's simply the Old Testament brought forward now, invigorated, made more alive, explained further, but never in opposition to the Old Testament. The scriptures that they knew, that they had memorized backwards and forwards. But because they dislike him, because they hate the effects of his teaching, the impact that it will have on them if the people believe it, they actually reject what he's been teaching. Even though they can find nothing wrong with it. This sort of attack on his teaching boils down to a rejection of the Old Testament. And that really needs to... We need to understand that as we, as we move forward to thinking about ourselves and how we respond, how we react to hearing the teaching of God, whether that's as we're reading the Bible, whether we're sitting under preaching or teaching in Sunday school or something along these lines. We need to understand that what happened with the Jews can happen with us too. And we need to therefore understand what happened with the Jews. What happened with the Jews was they ended up rejecting God's word. They ended up rejecting the Bible as much as had been given up to that point, right? And the reason that they rejected it is because they didn't like what it meant for them. They didn't like what it required of them. Who warned you to repent? The Pharisees are asked, right? Who warned you to repent? Why are they asked this? Well, because they're not repentant. The people are coming and being baptized. The people are coming and repenting. 
But what do we see with the Pharisees? They're not, they're not coming to be baptized and, and, and to repent. They're coming to try to make sure that nothing gets out of control, that they, make, that they maintain their power, that they stay with the, the people. So now Annas is asking Jesus about his teaching, and it's, it's obvious. He rejects the teaching of Jesus. And you cannot reject the teaching of Jesus without rejecting the Old Testament. And so you move forward to today, and the temptations that we face are twofold. Too often, we reject what God's servants are faithfully teaching without admitting that's what we're doing. And we end up, re- we end up rejecting what the Bible says. Nobody, ever, nobody who claims the name of Christ ever wants to say, well, yeah, I mean, I know that's what the Bible says, but I don't like it, and so I'm not going to follow it. Everybody who, everybody who claims to be a Christian claims to follow the Bible, right? And this is part of the reason why non-Christians will often point out the broad diversity of people who claim to be following the Bible and who, who all believe opposite things from each other on every imaginable topic, right? And say... Well, anybody can make what the Bible say whatever they want it to say. And therefore, there's no authority in the Bible. So non-Christians, people who reject the Word of God explicitly, look at the Bible and they say, you can't tell me what to do from the Bible because there's no knowing what it says because, look, some people say it says this and some people say it says that. But the question is, is there something that the Bible says? Is there any truth here? And the answer, of course, is yes. The Bible is entirely true and therefore entirely authoritative for not just us, but for the non-Christian as well. The difference being, those who follow Christ allow the Bible to speak authoritatively into their life, and those who do not follow Christ reject the words that it contains. Now then you've got this other category, and this is where things get interesting and dangerous and freaky for us, because it's like there's this other category of people who claim to be Christians, but like the Pharisees, reject God's word because they don't like what it means for them. And then you've got Peter. And Peter is this other category who's a true believer, right? He's one of the disciples whom Christ loved, and yet who is ashamed of what Jesus has done and said. These distinctions are important because we want to know what we are doing. We want to know where we are. Jesus has been clear in his teaching. It's not like it's impossible to understand what the Bible says. Are there some things that are 
that are complex in the Bible? Yes. Yeah, read Revelation, and there are, there are things that are complex to, and, and difficult to understand there. And Peter, in God's word, says that many of the things that Paul writes are difficult to understand. Right? And yet, read Revelation and read Paul's letters, and you're not going to miss the point, are you? You read Revelation, and what do you know? You know Jesus is God and King. And he will rule for all eternity. And it will be glorious. It will be glorious. And you read Paul's letters, you read even Romans, and it's a long theological treatise, and, and we, can't even, we can't even make ourselves read it straight through. Right? You've got to read it one chapter today and one chapter tomorrow. We've totally lost it by the time we get to the third day. We, have no idea. we don't remember what he said the first day. But what do you know, even if you read Romans that way? There's no, there's no forgetting what he does at the beginning of the book, is there? The ungodly and their wickedness and God's salvation that he has brought in spite of the wickedness of man. There's no, it's simple. God's word is clear. But what are the temptations that we face? Well, there's a lot of things that are very clear in the Bible that we really don't like. There's a lot of things that are very clear in the Bible that we would much rather attach to cultural artifacts rather than to God's will, right? And so, in seeking to avoid that uh, difficult truth that casts a question on what we're doing with our life or that makes us have to reevaluate how we've been living in that one area, what we want to do is seek to introduce uncertainty in what something means or in what is taught, or just try to bring something else up as a red herring. Or we will look for a fault in the person who is teaching or in what is being taught in order to justify our rejection of it. So what are some examples of this? Well, This, the last few months I've been um, studying the topic of shame. Studying and writing. And did you all know that shame is all through the Bible? I bring up shame because this is, a, this is in a sense, a safe topic to address because we've, n- we've never heard it taught on before. Guilt is something that you hear taught about on the bio, in the Bible, from the Bible a lot, right? You hear about sin, you, you connect it with guilt, and the Protestant theology is really focused on guilt and how guilt is dealt with. But what about shame? 
Do we know, do we know what the Bible says about shame? Do, no, we, we generally don't hear teaching on it. We don't hear preaching on it. And so it's, it's safe because I can come to you and you don't, have, you don't really have any idea what the Bible says, but you all have ideas about shame. So it's not very safe for me to bring it up because anything that I say that the Bible says might be very cutting to you, right? So I was talking with somebody this last week and I asked whether shame could be good. And this guy was like, I don't know, I don't think so. You know, when have you ever heard of shame being a good thing? Well, in Thessalonians, there's this strange little command. I better read it for you. You won't believe me otherwise. Whoops. Three. Oh, thank you. I was looking in the wrong chapter. Second Thessalonians three fourteen. <clears throat> if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. Boom. Right there. It's like. Ouch. You know, that really went against my presuppositions about shame and whether, you know, it's shocking. And we can, you, can, you may have read the book of Second Thessalonians 10, 20, 100 times and never really noticed that. That happens to me all the time when I'm reading. And all of a sudden something jumps out at you. Now it continues, verse 15, Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So one of the things that we're supposed to do in certain circumstances with people who are Christians is to make them feel shame by not associating with them. Is that shocking or what? Is, is it clear? It's clear, right? Do you like it? No, we don't like it. We've... We've come to the conclusion in America today that shame is always bad, right? So now you, you, you run into this, and you've got a choice. Either you have to deal with what it says, as though you believe the Bible, or you have to start coming up with some sort of an excuse. And this is what I was just talking about, right? Let's introduce some uncertainty. Well, does shame mean shame? Well, what's the... What's the Greek word there for shame? It's shame. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, well, context. Can't we come up with some sort of uh, questionable context? Well, it's talking about... It, the context is pretty clear. It's anyone who doesn't obey our instruction in this letter. 
but who is a brother? Uh, isn't there any way to introduce uncertainty into this? Because if I could just find some, in, some uncertainty, then I could ignore it again. And I could go back to living in America with America's idea of what shame is and whether it's bad or good. And so this is why I say shame is a very safe example because I know that probably none of you have ever thought about the fact that there's this command right here for shame. You say, well, but aren't there lots of other places where we're, like, certainly we're not supposed to actually make people feel shame. Can't I find some other place where it makes that clear? Well, no. Really, shame is actually a common topic in the Bible, and it starts all the way at the beginning when it says that Adam and Eve were naked and were unashamed. And that was good, right? But that then when they sinned, sin introduced not just guilt, but also shame. Now, I could go on and on, of course, having studied and, and so forth, talking about shame. I could preach a whole other sermon now, starting it too late, on shame. But that's not the point. My point is that here we are today in America, and America has this idea that shame is just bad for people. That it's just bad for anybody to feel shame. And yet, what's clear with Peter, so I'm going to come back now to Peter, Peter felt shame, and it was bad for him to feel shame, right? But what, what shame was Peter feeling? Peter was feeling shame at his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not the only shame that Peter ever felt. When Peter was first called, he was fishing. And Jesus said, throw out your nets. And all of a sudden, Peter realized Jesus had authority over nature because his net was full of fish. And what did, G what did Peter do? He said, go away from me, Lord. Why? Because he was ashamed of his sin. He goes on and says, because I'm, I'm a sinner. And, and you're God. Go away from me. And Jesus doesn't go away. Jesus deals with his shame and calls him to be a fisher of men, one of his disciples. You step forward now to, into our passage and you've got Peter being ashamed of Jesus Christ. What a terrible thing to be ashamed of. Our temptation to change what God's word has said or to make it unclear opens up for us the fact that so much of the time what we're ashamed of is not our sin leading us to Christ, okay? But rather what we're ashamed of is Christ and his words like Peter. Jesus says that whoever is ashamed of him 
and his words, in this evil and adulterous generation, that the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he returns. So are we ashamed of Jesus Christ and his words, or are we ashamed of our sin? Those are the only two choices. We are to be ashamed of our sin. We are not to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And why are we to be ashamed of our sin? So that we will leave it behind. So that we will be sanctified. There are many, many shameful things that we do. It's not helpful to say, that's not shameful. That's just fine. Everybody feels that way. Everybody's tempted that way. Even if it's true that everybody feels that way and everybody's tempted that way, it's shameful. The God who made you has given you a command to live a holy and pure life. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die so that you can have life in his name. And not just life and continue sinning, but life and holiness. Don't be ashamed of Christ and his words. Don't be like Peter, refusing to be known as a follower of Christ. You don't want to stand around a fire by his enemies trying to pretend like you're, not one, like you're one of them. Standing around with Christ's enemies pretending like you're one of them makes you one of them. Or at the very least makes you ashamed of your Lord. Christ is neither ashamed of God's word nor is he trying to avoid the consequences for what he has said. And so when you say something that leads to your persecution, when you say something that leads to your uh, being outed as a follower of Jesus Christ, when people begin to say, oh, so you think that you think that, you know, you fill in the blank. What, what do people think is really dumb that Christians believe today? I mean, I, I could list a thousand things. How about, uh, so, so you, you believe that, like, God made the world in, like, six days? I was talking to somebody not too long ago who was like, Oh, yeah, I mean, I knew this one Christian. I didn't, he knew I was a Christian. He's like, he, he actually believed that God made the world in like six days. And all of a sudden, he's looking at me like, you don't believe that, do you? <laughs> and I realized right at that moment, actually, it was after that conversation, I was thinking back on it, I realized right then, have you guys ever done role-playing for, for, uh, for like training for something? Maybe a job or maybe evangelism. Sometimes you'll do role-playing. Like, okay, here's somebody who's uh, coming up to you and he's going to ask you a question. Why do you have hope when I don't have hope? Oh, perfect opportunity to... All right. Okay, so here's the most helpful role-playing you can ever do. It's just practice saying yes. Do you believe that? Yes. Do, Do you believe this? Yes. 
but you don't believe, you don't believe, you don't believe that homosexuals are going to hell, do you? Yes. But you don't believe that, you don't believe that there's, you don't believe that, well, you, Do you believe that, do you even believe in love? Do you believe that God is love? Yes. There's a nice one. You like that one, right? <laughs> or you could practice, we could practice with saying no, too. Is it okay for people to fill in the blank? No. No. Just yes and no. It, those, those words, the yes and the no, those are where your shame is revealed. Do you understand? Because it's right when you're asked the simple yes-no question that what you want to do is you want to hedge your bets. You want to not totally deny what God has said, but you also want to, you know, um, make the other person feel comfortable. You want to do away with all shame over sin. But in doing away with shame over sin, you cast shame on Jesus Christ instead. And so almost always the hardest question that's asked of you is the yes-no question. Yes, people will always be unfair with their yes-no questions. Right? So, so you just think that women should be pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I believe. You can be sarcastic with your yeses, too. It's helpful sometimes. But why would somebody ask you that? Well, because they know that the Bible places children in marriage in a position of honor. They know it from your life. They know it from the things that you've been talking about. And so then, they hate what it means for them. They hate what it means for their own life. They're ashamed of what they've been doing. And and they just want you to give them a little bit of breathing room. And a little bit of breathing room is just a little bit of what you want, too. But don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ and his word. His word is clear. The idolater, the adulterer, the homosexual, the greedy, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it says. It says no. Right? Does it say that? Is it that clear? Is it that simple? Of such were some of you. And so there's hope. And of course, that's the message that Jesus was preaching, right? That's not the end of the conversation. That's the beginning. That's where you finally get to real things when you answer the yes-no question honestly, without shame, about what God's word says. And then you have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel.
Because until you're clear about that, there is no need for a Savior in this person's life. Jesus is standing before the priest and he says, I taught in public, I taught openly. Everybody could hear it, everybody was there. Ask them what I said. And Peter's around the fire going, no, no, I'm not one of his disciples. Christ is known for his teaching. What his words actually say, we may not be ashamed of him. And he's known for his miracles. And his miracles have not ended. He is still miraculously saving sinners out of their sin. And so, that's what we have as our message. That's what we have. There's nothing there to be ashamed of. It's beautiful. It's sweet. It's salvation in this life and in the life to come. It's hope for a future. Let's pray.